Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Back Half, the new Statesman's new culture podcast with me, Kate Mossman, arts editor. And me, Tom Gatti, culture editor. Why are we called The Back Half, Tom? We're called The Back Half because your good self and my good self work on the back half of the magazine. Traditionally, the magazine's always been a magazine of two halves politics and current affairs and all that stuff in the front half and books and culture and arts in the back half and that's what we do and that's what we do on this podcast that goes right back to 1913 doesn't it when it was founded it goes right back to 1913 the webs the fabians there was always culture in the news glory days and in fact i um recently met claire tomlin who edited the back half of the New Statesman in the mid-70s. I did an event with her at Cambridge Literary Festival, so she was telling me about hanging out with uh, Martin Amis, Julian Barnes, Christopher Hitchens. Uh, the I bet everyone just smoked at their desks, I think it took was, phone calls. I think it was quite a, quite a lively place. Went out for liquid lunch. Yeah, probably fewer sandwich packets and headphones littering the desks. Yeah, there's one person that vapes in our office, but he often gets wrapped on the knuckles for it. <laughs> Hides it under his sleeve, having a little... Kate, you were telling me before we uh, came on air, as it were, about your uh, new living arrangements. Yes, I'm currently sitting for a sort of semi-wildcat called Keith. What is a semi-wildcat? He's a savannah, which means he has a certain percentage of serval in his blood, which means he can jump up to four feet. He's three months old at the moment. And he's a strange creature because he's sort of half-dog. So the easy way of identifying savannas is that you might see them walking on a lead. If I have a wee, he gets into the toilet afterwards. He's really interested in those mechanisms. <laughs> and he's really hard work. You can't, I, you know, I was eating a bit of salad in the kitchen the other day. And suddenly at eye level, this thing with its arms out was flying towards me to get at the lettuce, which he didn't actually want, you know. So there's no, presumably, if he can jump that high, there are very few safe spaces. In there's the, no in safe, the flat. yeah, and I just have to kind of Keith-proof everything every night before I go to bed. And he jumps from um, a sitting position as well, so he doesn't have to do a running jump. He's just got so much energy in his hind legs, which are very long and strange, that he can just bounce up. So he's going to be about three foot tall eventually, and uh, we'll see what happens. Keith. Why is he called Keith? I don't know, we just thought it was a good name. <laughs> so thank you very much for sticking with us in our week off last week in fact it wasn't a week off we were finishing off a giant quadruple christmas issue of the new statesman which we'll tell you a little bit later on today we're going to be talking about the new film from uh, michael Haneke, happy end we're going to discuss the resurrection of craig david I'm going to tell you a little bit about a poet called Kim Moore, who's just won the Jeffrey Faber Prize. And we'll have our usual non-aversary, which I'll leave a mystery for the moment, I think. 
So we recently saw Happy End, which is the 12th film from the Austrian director Michael Haneke, following Amor, his last film, which was nominated for and won loads of awards, including an Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film. Haneke is a cheery chappy. The Curzon cinema recently sort of started off their Michael Haneke season with the phrase Happy Haneke uh, <laughs> over the top of their, their cinema, which I quite liked. This film picks up on all sorts of themes that are um, present earlier in his career. So it's the story of a family, the Laurent family. How does one unravel the plot of this? It starts with the young daughter, Eve, who's... Is she 13 or 14? Yeah, Something 13. like that, 13? Her mother takes an overdose, is seriously ill, so she goes to live with her father who's separated from her mother, he's called Thomas. So that's her introduction to the sort of very dysfunctional family household. And within that household is her grandfather, Georges, who is trying to kill himself, basically. He's looking for the happy end of the title. He's, he's fed up with life. There's Thomas's sister, so Eve's aunt, Anne, who runs the family business, some kind of construction business mm. or some kind of heavy industry business. There's her son, Pierre, who is a sort of alcoholic, borderline alcoholic. And then there's Thomas's new family, his wife, and they've got a baby. And then Thomas is having this... Uh, a uh, filthy cyber affair. I mean, I think it's, it's, a, it's a real... messenger, yeah. isn't it? Do, do we ever... We assume it's a real... It is a real affair as it's well. It's a real they, affair that seems to have arisen from just sort of three days worth of mm, sexual contact the previous year or something mm, like that. There's not really much um, physical reality to it. But it's uh, it's very amusing watching these, these messages pop up on the screen between each other. I want to see you piss in pain so I can console you. Or one calling the other one, my heart, my arse, my soul. It's a lot of arse involved. I mean, I don't know about you, Tom, but it's very funny, this film. I think it's hilarious, actually. That's why I think I'm willing to forgive whatever... I mean, this, this film had some of the worst reviews Michael Hanek has had for a long time because he's so critically revered and everyone loves him at Cannes. And, and then after this one, people were a bit sniffy about it. But I think it's like um, someone said on Twitter the other day, me on bands I don't like, all their songs sound the same. Me on bands I really like, all their songs sound the same and I love it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think if you like what he does, you'll like this. And it's very, very funny. The online sex exchanges are one example of that. It starts with Eve's sort of camera phone footage. She kills her hamster, which just sort of is crawling around and then just goes stiff and flops to the side, which maybe I'm quite cruel for laughing at. I think he's doing, Hanukkah's doing the reverse of what serial killers do, which is obviously they start off with animals and, you know, small defenceless beings and they move on to killing people. So Hanukkah started his debut film, an entire family kill themselves. And then there was Benny's video in which a teenager kills a school friend. And then of course there's the piano teacher where the lead character stabs herself in the heart and walks down the street. And then in a moor you get a pigeon death, which is very unpleasant. Mm. And Happy End begins with a hamster death. So it's almost like he's kind of, I don't know he's, he's he's lessening his blow and he's making it i mean i think it's an incredible achievement to take this topsy-turvy idea that the people in this film who want to die are the ones who've got the foresight 
and make it funny somehow. Mm. So you have the little girl in it who's suicidal, you have the old man who's suicidal, and they're the ones with the clear vision that, yes, actually, the only way out of this world is death. And then you've got these horribly brittle, neurotic, middle-class characters struggling to kind of survive, and yet they're the ones that you don't envy. You actually envy the, the old man and the girl somehow. Yeah, I wouldn't say there are strongly likable characters in this film but certainly you gravitate towards the the grandfather and the granddaughter i just want to very briefly mention because your roll call of animals missed out my favorite one which is in the white ribbon which is the budgie peepsy uh who How is does killed he die? does he go into a window he no he is killed with a pair of scissors in a really horrific way wow yeah just snipped <laughs> he's sort of internally crucified by a pair of scissors Ooh. Yeah. I mean, he can still. The, the, the beautiful thing is, he can still wring these amazing moments of tension from from very little. There's a scene in this where the the grandfather is just a long tracking shot of the grandfather making his way along a very busy road in a wheelchair, and he's on the pavement. Mm. So but it's shot from the wrong side of the street. Shot from the wrong side yeah. of the street. So technically, he's not going to get hit by these trucks because, yeah. and it just goes on for ages and ages. And then at the end, he has this long conversation with a group of men. And you're just left suspecting that maybe he might have been asking one of them to push him into the road. I don't know. I thought maybe that's what it was about. Because there's this great line that he says later on. Um, he did try to kill himself a few times. And he goes, I drove into a tree and I didn't get it right. It's not the done thing. <laughs> and, and another one of his good lines is that he goes to, you know, he goes to Dis Dignitas and they turn him away because he's too healthy, basically. <laughs> they wouldn't let him in. So then he's having his hair cut and he just springs it on his, his hairdresser Barber. and says, you know, will you, yeah, will you go and get me a gun get and me. finish me off? I love that scene. And he's, I don't want to get too pretentious about it, but he's a master of those distancing shots, the, the things shot from very far away or through a... There's, there's also a scene where they're arriving back at the house. I think it's bringing him back from hospital. I can't quite remember. But you see it through the French doors with the dog barking in the foreground. So the whole scene is just all you can hear is the dog. And you're watching it through these doors. And I guess most prominently the last scene of his film, Hidden, which uh, Cachet, which is shot from way back. And it's it's a conversation between two of the central characters and of course, you can't hear a word they're saying. And you're just straining your eyes to try and work out what's going on with the body language. And it's left completely, completely ambiguous, which is either frustrating or genius, depending on, yeah. depending on how you look at it. There's nothing excessive in it. I mean, even the um, Isabel Huppert character, you know, at the centre of this, that she is the problem for a lot of people. You know, there's, she's got no maternal instinct whatsoever. There's something almost sort of evil about this woman. But you don't really go into why that might be, but there's, mm. in the piano teacher, obviously, if she's the one who takes a knife and stabs herself in this very shocking moment. And in here, all that horror is kind of embodied in a bit where she shuts her son up at a family function by breaking his finger to quieten him. And you just can't believe it's what you've just seen on screen, but it's such a small thing. And I just think it's kind of... Um, I mean, why did critics not like it? I'm intrigued. Certainly one of the reviews I read said it's a tableau of greatest tears. Ah. So not saying that the component parts are good, but it doesn't cohere into a whole and everything here he's done before. I think it's so conscious. And Ryan Gilby in his very good review for us brought this out. So he's consciously riffing on his earlier films. So Georges, the grandfather, tells Eve that he eventually smothered his wife, which is what another character called George, played by the same actor, does in Amour, his previous film. The family is called Laurent, and that's the name of the similarly uh, dysfunctional middle-class family in Hidden. And then you've got all the other kind of thematic echoes of, of suicide and 
deaths deaths of pets and things so i think people just thought it was too much of a, a mashup of stuff he'd done before but i've never seen him do it with such a good sense of humor and also i think that i'm sure he has touched on this before and i'm not an authority on his films but what i liked in this is just the absolute almost criminal awfulness and neglect of the parental figures so you mentioned isabel Huppert breaking her son's finger <laughs> you also have thomas who's just the worst father in the world eve who her mum's had this suicide attempt she's in hospital you know she gets upset in the car as he's driving her somewhere and he's like we can't be inside your head how could we know you miss your mother you know, you know like, he's got he's absolutely unable to connect with her in in the slightest way yeah and when she discovers all his um, sexual messages to his to his lover. She's, he's more concerned about changing the password on Facebook Messenger, isn't he? Yeah. And the fact that she's actually just taken an overdose from yeah. it. I mean, I think it, there are a lot of amazingly um, intense films that look at these dysfunctional, brittle kind of middle-class families in Europe. And it's, it's such a nice thing to see it done with a little bit of humour because there's something deeply depressing about watching people who exist in a kind of repressed silence. And at least the humour here punctuates that a little bit, sort of pops the bubble every now mm. and again. But maybe, yeah, maybe the critics didn't like it because it's a bit too boomtish for them if they're really into Hanukkah's other stuff. Can I just end with a nice quote from Hanukkah on this, which is, in a recent interview, he said... The hypocrisy and the lies of these characters, which we also share, that's not something you can sell anymore as a tragedy. You can only sell it as farce. Tragedy as a form has emigrated to the third world. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Kate, you have spent what feels like most of this year with Craig David. Frontline reporting started a year ago. Actually, I saw him a year ago doing Radio 4's Master Tapes and I was entranced. 
by how brilliant he was at holding a room and at demonstrating the difference between New York House and the British version and the, you know, what two-step is and spitting bars in this very, very complicated, very impressive way. And so I decided to try and interview him and it took me a long time to set it up because, of course, he is a big star. He's a big star now and he, he was a big star then. For listeners who might be either significantly younger or significantly older than us, can you just tell us briefly what his story is. So of course he started writing his first songs when he was sort of 16 or 17. He guested on Re-Rewind, Artful Dodger's garage track that actually broke through to I think number two. Um, this is when the crowd say Bo Selector. This is Bo Selector, late yeah. 90s. Quickly got a solo deal out of that and did evocative songs of teenage sex, <laughs> like Seven Days and Fill Me In. Very romantic tracks in a way, looking back on them. There's sort of some terrible lyrics but really the lyrics of somebody who was kind of slightly old head on young shoulders and trying to kind of sum up the experience of maybe creeping around in their parents' house. Fill Me In always used to amuse me when talking about the, the evidence of this kind of little tryst that's gone on between the couple. Red wine bottle, half the content's gone. <laughs> so was it, isn't there one line, you were dressed in black and now you're dressed in white? No, you you're were dressed, dressed in white. white and now you're dressed in black. <laughs> but they're really good. John Wilson, when, we, when I saw him on Master Tapes, really kind of was comparing them to uh, classic songs like Why Must I Be a Teenager? in love in the way that they kind of evoked that sense of trying to be a bit older than mm. you were which was interesting for him because he was a, a sort of you know bit of a prodigy in a way a sort of strange boy in a shell suit who started emceeing at the age of 14 and always hung around with older mentors and was just absolutely nerdish about his record collection and used to come up to Soho with his mother from Southampton and spend a lot of money on rare pressings of Faith Evans records and stuff. So in a way, his career was whacked off track, as is well known by Lee Francis's sitcom, well, sketch show in the early 2000s called Bo Selector. And never has, I don't know about you, but I can't think of an example in history when a comedy skit has taken over from the real person like mm. that. I guess you think of Thatcher's spitting image mm. persona or something like that, but it's a different ball game, isn't it? How big was he at the time of that debut album? He's had the same management for a long time and uh, his manager told him when he was about 21 that statistically one in four households owned a copy of his debut album Amazing. Born to Do It. So he was incredibly famous very, very quickly. Mm. And then he was knocked by... His, his career was not quite established enough to withstand a silly joke. So Bo Selector was this guy Lee Francis in a massive sort of rubber yeah. prosthetic head doing a weird northern accent doing which like has a nothing to do voice. with Craig David and and sort of doing a little... What was his sort of signature he, he thing? He just kind of did... He um, said Craig David's name in a... Craig David. He went, Craig David. And I think when I was trying to work out why it became so powerful, I think it was because it was such a simple joke that it sort of, it became part of folk culture almost. Mm. It was so easy to say that in an office, like your Wernham Hogg style office, just sitting there. No one's got any kind of, you know, creativity to come up with something more intelligent than, than that. So they're just like mimicking the name and they just like saying, but it took over for him to the point where he would be going along the street and people would just go, Craig, behind his back. And he kind of, you know, it hit him very hard and he moved to Miami. Well, he was so young as well. I mean, yeah. I think, you know, I think as you were saying the other day, you know, something like that so early on in your career can be a, can really hold you back. Yeah, because, it, yeah, because also he wasn't really able to laugh at himself. No. He was quite a serious yeah. young guy, yeah. which makes sense now when you kind of look back at how, just how extremely nerdish he was about music. So he thought what he was doing was, you know, cutting edge stuff. And in a way now... 
a lot of it does appear to have been that. There was this piece in the website Noisy a couple of years ago, and they basically ran this call to arms saying, come back, Craig, your time is now. Mm. You know, we understand where you stand in the history of grime, Stormzy, Skepta, all that kind of stuff. He was encouraged by that. He actually read that piece. And now he's kind of reactivated his career. And I, I went to see him in a pool party in Ibiza in August because I thought it'd be an interesting location to watch him at work in. What happens at a pool party in Ibiza in August? Well, it was Lucifer was on, you know, the, the sort of heat wave. So it was about 37 degrees and that meant that people couldn't move generally. So the people who came to see Craig were lying around the pool and they were wearing maybe thongs and crocheted bikinis and things like that. And then Craig turned up at six o'clock and at 6.05 he went on to a little podium next to the pool. And he had to go on at 6.05 because the sun went down at 6.03, meaning <laughs> that they could take the parasol down and he'd be in full view. And basically what he does now is uh, something called TS5, which is a sort of personal DJ set thing. And it's this really genius thing. I saw him take over the O2 in April and basically turn it into a club for half the show. He just does these kind of incredibly slick mashups of like, you know... Jump Around by House of Pain, Show Me Love, No Scrubs, Groove Jets, If This Ain't Love, Going Into Yourself by Justin Bieber and stuff. And so he's tailored his set perfectly for a mid-30s audience right. who might have remembered him from the first right. time around. So like all good DJs, he knows what the crowd wants. But there's this kind of bizarre experience watching him because he's so dexterous that he's got his his earphones like wedged between his shoulder and his chin and he's twiddling knobs with one hand and then he's like spitting bars over the top and rapping really, really fast. It's just kind of interesting. And I think maybe he is back as a sort of, I don't know, like a permanent traveling, crowd-pleasing DJ act or something. Mm. The sort of slight nerdishness is something that really comes through in your piece. He wasn't just some slick singer who was picked up for crowd-pleasing ability. He's really invested in the music, isn't he? And his approach to the DJ sets is sort of quite scientific and yeah. quite kind of algorithm stats-based. He used to make these mixtapes when he was a teenager to fund his record habit. And he would not only use the college printer where he was doing a GMVQ in electronics. He thought he was going to work at Richer Sounds or something like that. That was his ambition. He would not only make covers for them, but he would get them laminated and then cellophane as well. And then sell, sell them at like 10 quid a pop. So he was entrepreneurial and he was very geeky at that point mm. and it's funny how fame and sex appeal knock that sense of intelligence out of somebody as far as the public are concerned you don't think of them as thinking people mm. creating music you think of them as well his songs actually kind of gave the impression of him being this serial shagger with loads and loads of girlfriends and you know he may actually not have no, almost, almost sort of certainly not. You feel yeah. like once you once you get to know, I was really glad of the opportunity because Craig David would have been someone I would have dismissed summarily at the time, like just absolutely not interested. As you said, going back and listening to that first record, it's got a really original sound, and it's not really garage. It's some of the tracks touch on garage, but is uh, you know he was a classically trained guitarist. There's there's really like nice acoustic guitar. The beats, although I think they're probably drum machine programmed, they're quite sort of organic there's interesting rhythms it reminded me a bit of speech to bells album which uh, won the mercury prize and i think you were saying you know this is the sort of record that if it came out now we'd be talking about it as in the running for the mercury because the mm. the goalposts have shifted a bit in, in that way we're more comfortable giving this kind of music its due really but in a funny kind of way the lyrical content sort of overtook didn't it the image of him as this kind yes. of um 
I don't know how to explain it really. Seven Days is hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> listening to listening to it again, the concept is good, but he's got a problem in that song in terms of narrative arc. It peaks quite soon, right? <laughs> I met this girl on Monday, took her for a drink on Tuesday, and you're like, okay, I see this is going to be like a slow build throughout the week. It's, you know, interesting. We were making love by Wednesday, and on Thursday and Friday and Saturday, we chilled on Sunday. <laughs> so it's kind of... <laughs> I can explain that because he said that the reality of that experience for which he wrote the lyrics was only four days. Right. So he can <laughs> he can use his imagination to supply what have happened, what might have happened no. on the other few days. I also just love the uh, biblical "We chilled on Sunday." <laughs> it's fantastic. I think there was something that was, um, and I, I sort of mentioned this in the piece, but. There's something about the language of, of grime that was very alien then to the kind of you know, Middle England kind of audience. So in a way, it lent him to these kind of ridiculous comedy versions because he was full of strange words that people didn't know and ticks. And he just kind of like the music comes out of his body in a funny kind of way. And it was the sort of stuff that, of course, Sasha Baron Cohen aped through the figure of Tim Westwood in Ali G. It was just a period where, for some reason that stuff seemed alien and, and worthy of some kind of cartoonish treatment. And maybe that's why people were just like obsessed with the fact that he said Bo Selector all the mm. time. But, and he talked about himself in the third person. Yes, Craig David all over your boink. <laughs> like, what, what does that mean, Craig well, David? Well, he said that, um, and I don't know if this is true, but his answer for this is that he talked about himself in the third person in order to separate the humble lad from Southampton from the one who was becoming famous. So psychologically, it was of use to him to talk about himself in the third person. I guess this is really common now, isn't it, with uh, pop stars and especially like R&B and hip hop stars having alter egos and... And and they do talk about themselves, yeah. don't they? And they write about themselves. Only his was an alter ego with his own name. With his own name. <laughs> but it was, it was someone who had a jacuzzi instead of a sort of bath in a mauve bathroom. You know. <laughs> um, I think it's great that now that Grime is, you know, so much more in the mainstream now that it's sort of he's better understood in terms of what he was doing. He was a it was a, a sort of little bits of sounds of the underground that popped up into mm. the top ten and then and then sort of disappeared again for quite a few years. Mm. And he went through his own sort of, you know, going off to Miami and doing loads and loads of bodybuilding and sort of this being involved in the strange red rope culture that excludes you from some clubs and lets mm. you into others. And it's just nice to see, I guess it's just like growing up, isn't it? And being more comfortable in your own skin and the fact that he's accepted that he's a really good DJ and that he's made actually this into his career. I mean, you've heard the new record, haven't you? Yeah, you so we, we, we both just had a very brief listen to the new record, uh, which is called The Time Is Now, and it's out in January. It's, it's fun. <laughs> I've no idea about the genesis of this record, but it feels like one of these things where there's probably quite a few producers involved. It feels quite well engineered. And um, there's loads of auto-tune on it, which is a shame, <laughs> which is a shame because, you know, as you said, like he can do cool stuff with his voice. There's and... one track that actually sounds like it sounds like it's buffering all the way through. Yeah, those little kind of, yeah, and little ghostly echoes in the background, which again is all quite on trend and, you know, bringing bits of dubstep in and stuff. And let's hear just a little bit from The Time Is Now. This is Craig David with Heartline. All my friends think I'm crazy Maybe I've lost my mind But put my heart on the line for you My heart on the line for I put my heart on the line for you Put my heart on the line for you I put my heart on the line for you My heart on the line for Lyrically, I don't 
think he's forged new paths and horizons um he doesn't need to as well because he's got this other career going so he yeah. goes like when i was in ibiza with him he was going to copenhagen the next day and then like i think florida the day after that and he's just moving around doing one hour crazy energy dj sets mm. with a little louis mm. vuitton bag so perhaps the new music is kind of almost incidental yeah. but there was one track i quite liked and it, it it was relevant for your piece because in your piece he's quite sort of aware of social media and and you know they stop at one point and take a photo of a billboard uh, with his face on it to put it to put it on either Twitter or Instagram. There's one song on there which is all about Instagram. <laughs> we do it for the Insta, we do it for the Gram. When you're done taking pictures, don't forget the hashtag. <laughs> and then the chorus is blah 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 yeah 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 yeah, which I think is either it's either a brilliant satire of the vacuousness of social media. Or just quite a silly song, and I'm, I'm not sure which. <laughs> time Is Now, isn't it? It's out on the 26th of January, I think. And The Time Is Now, incidentally, is the um, also the headline of the noisy piece that encouraged him to come back and, you know, take up his place again. And let's hear a little bit of The Time Is Now. This is Craig David with I Know You. It's going to be a heavy night too many drinks ain't even started Never need to apologize We already know we're far from perfect I fall to the curb You laugh till it hurts Who cares? We've been here so many times We're all stumbling through the night It doesn't matter I'm about to introduce a little poetry corner to the podcast. It may well be a one-off poetry <laughs> corner, but we'll see. I recently judged the Jeffrey Faber Prize, which is awarded each year, and it's awarded in alternate years to a novelist and then a poet and then a novelist and a poet and so on for writers 40 years or under. Very, you know, august lineage. Seamus Heaney won it, Tony Harrison won it, Jeffrey Hill won it, Kurt Seer won it, Barnes, and then they remembered about women and uh, Kathleen Jamie and all sorts of other people won it. And I judged it with poets Gillian Clark and Catherine Towers. And the winner is a debut collection from a writer called Kim Moore, who lives in Barrow in Cumbria. It's called The Art of Falling. It's published by Seren. And it's just an extraordinary collection, and I like it more every single time I read it, which is, I think, a really good sign. It's got a great range. There's poems about teaching the trumpet. She's a trumpet player and a trumpet teacher. And in fact, at the prize ceremony, Kate, she was telling me about playing in a uh, band with these members from a Northern Soul band called Chapter Five, mm. who were briefly huge in 1966 with a song called You Can't Mean It, which now goes for... You know this bizarre thing with Northern Soul where yeah. they're, they're always B-sides yeah. and they get, they just still command huge prices at auctions. Whenever this record goes up, it goes for hundreds of pounds. So her other life is playing trumpet in this band with all these uh, old dudes. And then the rest of the time, she's um, writing these amazing poems about, yeah, teaching the trumpet. There's a, there's a poem called A Psalm for the Scaffolders, which is about um, uh, her father's a scaffolder and great sort of portrait of of that community and then the central section of the of the book is a series of poems about a, basically about domestic abuse about a, an abusive relationship called how i abandoned my body to his keeping which i think to some extent draws on personal experience and she's just brilliant at writing about the body relating it to, to animals to landscape it's frightening but it's also can be quite funny and i asked her to read a poem for the podcast 
So this is Kim Moore with The World's Smallest Man. The World's Smallest Man Today I make you into the world's smallest man. You are so small I open my hand and you dance on the great landscape of my palm. You are a thin stick of a man. When you stretch out along my lifeline, your feet touch my wrist and your head rests below my index finger. You are a small man, but like a small dog you are unaware of your size. Sometimes you go missing for days, then jump out and shout, Surprise! But you do not mean surprise. I decide to make you even smaller, the size of an insect. Now you can walk upside down. I think of all the places I could leave you. Now you are smaller than the lightest water boatman, but you keep shrinking till you are less than a grain of salt, so small you are living on my skin. And once I breathe, I breathe you in. So Tom, it's yes. time for our non-anniversary. Our non-anniversary. What is it this week? 11 years ago this month, we said goodbye. So this is the first for the non-anniversary saying goodbye to something. To stars in their eyes. I remember that day so well. Did you used to watch it? No. <laughs> but I did, I did watch quite a lot of it last night. <laughs> you did, well, you didn't watch it at the time. No. But it was brilliant. I know. I feel like I missed, as with so many TV things, I think I missed a, a huge kind of bit of cultural DNA. Anyway, tell me what was so good about it. Well, historically, this could never happen now. So this is one of those weird things that's in recent history, but feels like it must have been made in the 50s when you look back on it. Mm. It's amazing to think that in the format of this show, by simply imitating someone for one night for a few minutes, you get your moment of fame and then you go back home. And of course, it was knocked out of the water by the TV talent shows, The X Factor, yeah. Britain's Got Talent, who promise you fame, even though it never happens. Yeah. So it's about you, it's about your backstory, it's about you channeling your voice. This was literally put on a wig, go on as Stevie Wonder. Have a sing, have a dance, have a sing. go home. It was as much about how you looked as how you sounded as yeah. well. And also it's a weird combination of being quite serious about itself. Like you didn't, it was the talent shows that brought in the idea of laughing at a bad act, right? Right. When you kind of get someone crap or just... Yeah, yeah. Whereas this was like, there's no way you'd laugh at, you know, someone who was trying to do Belinda Carlisle and not doing it very well. So the first ever series had, I think, people doing Kylie Minogue and Roger Whittaker. And then over time, they tried to make it a bit more interesting by bringing celebrities on. Edwina Curry did Edith Piaf. And then they had like a family version where an entire family would play the Beatles. <laughs> but then, of course, it just was seen as being very out of date and old fashioned. And it was axed. I loved watching a couple of the first episodes precisely because of the lack of journey and puffery mm. it's so like and i think it may have been one of the first shows to use these like what you know what you call it like a vt oh yeah insert like a so you do get a little bit yeah. of who they are and and a hint of what they might be doing or why they might be doing it but it's like very very short and it's just like linda helping out on her uncle's farm for like two minutes it's not saying that linda's got a tragic backstory no, no absolutely not and then she comes on they just say who are you going to do and and she says cindy lauper and Bosh, you're away. And then you can see as it as it goes on, I watched one from towards the end, and already that had begun to be padded out. Cat TV's oh. presenting and there's much more of a like a story and they, they talk about how they feel about the performance and there's a lot more padding. Yeah. Um 
I love the business-like, uh, business-like yeah. nature. It has its place in the history of the, the music shows that literally run Saturday Night TV. And also, we were curious about this in the office just now, but we thought, hang on, they did let white people imitate black people and vice versa, didn't they? And we looked it up. We found that there was a white person going on as Michael Jackson yeah. during Michael Jackson's white period. Yes. But still, that would not happen now. You couldn't... I suppose not. No. No, maybe not. And you found some American show. American equivalent, but that had a great name. That was called Your Face Sounds Familiar, <laughs> which really I puts a that. finger on how much this is about appearances. And that was a very woke episode in which they allowed a white woman to become Stevie Wonder. Right. So that kind of, that's a whole different that's thing. Okay, that's trans music. Yeah, you know, so, yeah, yeah. so yeah. Happy anniversary, stars in their eyes. Thank you for downloading this episode of The Back Half. If you enjoyed it, may I recommend the visual print-based companion piece, which is the Christmas issue of The New Statesman. It's a first. It's a quadruple issue. It's a a bumper, bumper, pull-up-to-the-bumper issue. Among my favourite things in it are a feature in which lots of great writers and Kate um, talk about their... Not their favourite albums, but an album that's really important to them. Kate, you talked about Paul Simon's album Rhythm of the Saints. Graceland. Yeah. And also we have Lionel Shriver writing about Mark Knopfler, which is a first. <laughs> yes, particularly. Exciting. And we have a great diary from Armando Iannucci as well. A new short story from Rose Tremaine and lots of other... And an interv- some, two interviews with controversial political figures. We won't say who. But we also have Kate's Craig David interview in there. And the Q&A by... Uh, Graham Linehan, which is a good one. Yeah, Graham Linehan, creator of um, Father Ted and Motherland. And also a bit of trivia, possibly everyone knows this, I didn't know, but just before Father Ted started, he was writing with writing partner Arthur Matthews, selling sort of sketches to other shows, and they created the Ted and Ralph characters from The Fast Show. I didn't know that either. Yeah, there you go. So, yes, thank you for listening to the podcast. We have been edited by Caroline Crampton. If you enjoy rating things, I absolutely hate rating things. Me and too. I get infuriated with how you're expected to rate every single online interaction you have these days. Or your days. experience going through passport control. Have you seen that? Oh, like just <laughs> clicking on the happy <laughs> face or the sad face. Yeah, yeah. But no, I really resent I, I really, really resent that and I almost never rate anything. Having said that, <laughs> if you'd like to rate the podcast on iTunes, it would be helpful and nice. So please do that. If you have any suggestions for non-aversaries, please get in touch with me or NS Podcasts on Twitter. Yeah, no one's done that yet. Is anyone listening? Please, non-aversaries, send them in. No one's done it, have they not? No. That's so depressing. Come on, come <laughs> on, guys. They're also really hard to find. So yeah, get in touch and um, we will be back with you with some other stuff next week. And in the meantime, we leave you... With the dulcet, non-dulcet tones of Pistol Jazz playing their soon-to-be-massive worldwide hit, Godspeed. And in the meantime, we leave you with another poem from Kim Moore. This one's called That Summer. That Summer. Whatever went wrong that summer started with the red wings that fell from the sky in a country no one could remember the name of. I watched the trails of planes and realised you had a red wing in your chest instead of a heart. 
The dragonflies were tiny bottles whirring around our heads. Knowing about the Red Wing didn't help. On television the towers were whole, then they fell, then they were whole again. I knew you were in New York, that this would change you. I said, come back and find me some day. But the music was so loud and the next day I moved countries and forgot to tell you. There are no dragonflies here, of course. They froze in mid-air and sounded like spoons on a flagstone floor as they dropped. What does this mean? Nothing, really. Except I knew you, then I didn't, then I stopped. <laughs>